Wyatt? Yeah, Wyatt. Wyatt. And so we come today, yes? Come, come back to your grandma so I'll miss <laughs> <laughs> Well. Bring boy. pictures. Okay. <laughs> God, it's such a different world. Just been grieving over it for days. There's a um, one of the parishioners in the evening um, class. Tracy has been—I um, don't know what to call it. She's been a mentor to a young woman, a part of a program for years. Court mentor. And she's reached a point um, where Tracy's comment was that um, she, she's just at bottom. Or she hopes she has. I don't think. I myself don't think she has. She says there's just nothing right now that she's not doing. She's in a program, but um, our, our world is really insane. True, truly insane. Truly, um, just it thinks it's so reasonable, and it's just just not. Um, any other prayers? Father Flynn. Um, Barbara, give me the names of Dane. Dane, D A Y N E. And the, the and Wyatt. Wyatt, Dane and Wyatt. Christ, Christ, Christ. How's your daughter doing? Another stranger. Um, well, a lot of prayers. In the name of the Father. Wait, sorry. There's all sorts of good things this morning. So take, um, let's say prayers. But you, there's um, warm quiche. It just came in and. Some other things. It's really good. Pigs in a blanket. We're staying the day. This is a retreat. We're spending the day. Yeah. Okay. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Mm, heavy. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself in the Mass. Um, we haven't been in a while. Um, we're looking forward to the new priest. Um, but for your presence with us all day long anyway, all that you ask of us, all that you offer to help. Um, what a great gift. And the nature of it is free. You ask us to give ourselves freely. Hard thing to do. Um, we so often give expecting something in return when you've asked us to put that away and offer ourselves with you. Strengthen all of us to do that, please. Um, this morning we have a couple of serious prayers. Um, be with Dane. Um, make an opening for him in purgatory. Let that um, young man um, know the joy that he wanted um, so desperately um, that against the struggle to hold out for it he um, gave up. Deep down, there had to be some longing for something better. Um, um, open a place for him in purgatory. Um, um, let our prayers um, be turned to graces for him. Um, 
that he um, give himself to um, all that's asked there um, so that ultimately um, he will know you in your presence. And it be so for all of us as well. And be with his family, console them, let um, the um, the awful nature of this not drive them to despair themselves and help them to take greater faith. Um, you give us our freedoms here, um, trusting that all the difficulties we face will um, draw us closer to you. Let it be so for um, Dane's family, those who care for him. <clears throat> we ask a special blessing on Wyatt um, and um, his mother and father, um, keep the mom safe, let the delivery go well, um, keep him safe, and let all that they um, go on to do together be a joy for them. This is their first, Barbara? Yeah. yeah. Um, let it be a joy for them, a, a, a new world, a new world. Um, we, know, um, we come to know the nature of freedom and love better when we have a child. <laughs> because it makes it clear then that there's so many things that we might want to do that we can't because we've got this child that depends on us so much. <clears throat> Be with them in their struggles going forward and the life they want to offer him. Um, uh, for or, um, Thanksgiving for all that's gone on with Bruce and Debbie and Dan. Um, Dan. Dan? Continue to Matt, Matt. sorry. Matt. Matt. Continue to strengthen him in the efforts that he's making, um, and let all that um, Debbie and Bruce are discovering be a source of renewal in their own faith. Um, it's true for all of us. It's almost as if we don't grow unless we're facing disorders and suffering, because so often we look past them. But all that's going on with him. Um, be good, continue to strengthen him. Um, ask a, um, a special blessing too on Father Flynn and all that he's beginning in his new parish. Um, and I ask for a blessing on our parish here that we welcome the new priest, put away expectations, and help us to stay open to him um, and to bring to what we do here all that Father gave us uh, while he was here. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> we're not going to do we're not going to do um, a lyric today because it didn't do well on Monday. I want to go wait. Um, Fred, if I don't if I don't pick up. Your question before I start this, and I go through it because I'm going to try to work it in here. <clears throat> Stop me and ask me again, would you? Okay. Um, okay. Just a quick, um, um, a quick review of some of the things that we did last week. Um, You know, you've been hearing me talk about poetry as um, prophetic in so many ways that it's 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 prophetic 
in the sense that it helps us to see things about ourselves that so often we don't want to see. It's interesting to me that according to our tradition, I don't think Protestants believe this and Eastern, East, Eastern Orthodox churches, I would assume should, but I'm not sure. But we're all asked to be priests, prophet, kings. So something in our own life um, should have the courage to deal with things that most of the world doesn't, you know, to look at things and have the courage to bring them up. In my own experiences, Father Flynn would often jokingly say, <clears throat> you know, he, he, he thinks every one of us um, should have a, um, a, an impact on somebody, be the source of a conversion in that person's soul. Um, I think he, he said he, na he could name one, I think, and he said that humorously because he did it in the context of realizing he's got 4,000 souls, you know, that he carries the bed every night. Um, 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 I can't get that young man out of my head. Um, no, 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 I'm so glad you did it. I'm so glad you did it. Um, one of one of the things I trouble over in our church is um, I, I don't know that anything can be done about it, but you know if you look at the saints, most of the saints, um, the the large I think majority of them are priests and women in orders, and I I don't think it can be other than that because those are people who've given their lives completely to Christ. The understanding in the Catholic world is that a priest will not marry. Priests from other orders come into the church when they're married. I mean, the church, that to me is a sign of health. You don't ask somebody who wants to make a conversion, give up your wife and your children. You, they come in. <laughs> can't imagine that. Um, but, I, but I understand it because, because um, to be a priest means you have to devote your life completely to God. And if you're married, your life's divided. You're, you know, you're half concerned about what your wife, what's going to go on, what she expects, what you should do, or sh you know, you, you, you carry that. Um, one of my griefs, truly, is that I don't think the church gives enough credit to what goes on in families. I mean, it's it's rare that you'll hear anybody who's a saint in his family. I mean, there's all sorts of problems with that. A prophet's not known in his own village, you know. How much goes on in our own families that we don't even see because it's so familiar to us? It's a part of our lives. But when I, when I think about you know Father's encouragement for us to take seriously the conversion <laughs> of souls, <laughs> I mean you may be laughing at what I'm saying right now, but I think um, sometimes I I don't think we're concerned enough about what goes on in our families when those struggles are great enough. Um, the burdens that we bear in our family, the crosses, are sometimes heavy. It doesn't have to lead to a disaster. I mean, just sometimes ordinary things. But my own sense is that a, there's a saintliness in, in people, in families, because of what they have to take on. And I don't think the church recognizes that. And I'm not even, I don't even know how they would. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's what I'm getting at right now is it's my way of saying there have to be unspoken, unacknowledged saints in families everywhere, even if the church doesn't recognize them, so that when we're acknowledging saints, Father calls them to mind in his homilies, you know, daily. We honor certain saints on certain days. It's rare to, to hear 
something positive about something that goes on in families because it's unseen, you know, except by God. So, <clears throat> so this whole thing about um, sainthood and holiness is, um, I, I wish somehow the church could do it. And even if it can't, I think what I'm saying right now is that I, at least here for this group, I'd, I'd like all of us to, to somehow feel deeply, know deeply, be aware that um, all of us, everybody in this room, um, all of us have been called to holiness. For anybody to take that seriously in our world today, in a family, means it, it, it's going to double the troubles that that person's going to bear, or even the people in the family. Lots more is going to be asked, lots more expected, harder things to do. And that's all in the context of a world that wants to make everything we do comfortable and secure. So it's just my way of reminding everybody, I hope what we're doing together here in this, you know, by reading this literature where we're not dealing with exclusively with saints or we're dealing with ordinary people who live ordinary life the way we do. But I hope that one of the things that's going on in our work together is that we, we, we take more seriously our call to holiness, every one of us and learning to see these problems as we have been doing, we find strength in carrying that out so that we're just not going back to our families, we're not going back to what the world calls its respectability and finding a comfort there. Um, because Christ, that <laughs> he knows better than we do, but I don't think that's one of what's on his mind when he says, when he's asking us to be whole, to follow him, to, so. So I'm, poetry, part of the beauty of poetry is that it, it, it doesn't offer us abstractions. It does not offer us abstractions. It shows us things about ourselves that very often we don't see, but it does it in a way that doesn't devastate us. I mean, it may have some works or can be devastating, you know that. Um, if you're reading Oedipus Rex and come to the end when Oedipus has gouged out his eyes and you have an image of the gore these hollow sockets, blood dripping, that's the description of him. Um, um, physical effects are mediated out of literature. We can imagine this. It's not the same thing as somebody in front of us with his eyes gorged out. Um, so th there's a beauty to poetry that can mitigate, can assuage these, you know, these horrors that very often literature shows us. Um, so literature, poetry as prophecy is, is for me a real thing, that it, it helps us to relate more fully to everybody else. It makes us aware of our ties with everybody else. Um, we don't feel quite so alone. You know, we, we feel a part of a, a larger, more Catholic world because we've encountered everybody. Um, it gives us a strength um, and, and the, in some sense, I think we have to be grateful to the poets who had the courage to do these things. Um, warning, there's warm quiche. <clears throat> so, um, remember that one of the claims that I've been making, the, the world doesn't see it this way. Most people in the practical world go poetry, get a job. <laughs> that's the remember poetry I mean and what's on their mind when they do that is 
going to physics, going to teaching, going to biology, you know, whatever you're going to do, um, become a scientist. Um, because they don't think of poetry in terms of the knowledge that it gives us. And I've been pushing this since we began. Poetry gives us a knowledge. It has a knowledge distinct to itself. It's, it's, it's knowledge as experience formed. So it takes us back to the concrete world. We can re-enter it with new eyes and we see things we didn't before. It does have a knowledge. It's special. Um, I, I would call it closer to wisdom literature because it takes us back to the world but in ways that clarifies our sight. We see better. Coming out of Moby Dick or Faulkner's Sound of the Fury, you know, whatever it is we're reading. So don't lose sight of that, okay? Um, it's, it's especially important now that we're doing Dante because remember, Dante's writing at the, at the outset of what we know today as the commercial regime. It's Florence is the prototype. What he's showing us is ourselves, directly. This is us. In the hell that he's looking at, he's showing people in hell whose lives have been defined largely in terms of a commercial republic. They're driven by pride, envy, wanting to get ahead, using people, even killing them. The, in the number of murders that went on in Dante's lifetime because of political reasons. Oh God, it makes me shudder when I think about what's going on politically in our world today. But he's showing us ourselves. Um, so this isn't just, he's not giving, he's not offering a catechism. He's revealing the commercial regime, its underworld, as it is. And in that sense, he's showing us something about the underworld that each one of us carries within ourselves. Because in Plato's cave, that world defines us. The great question for every one of us is, can we learn to see it and make our way out of the cave? Plato didn't know Christ. We believe, I believe, Christ came into the cave. He's the way out. But do we stay with him in the sense that we learn to see ourselves as we are in this cave and work with him to get out? So poetry has that prophetic aspect. It's particularly true here. Last week, <coughs> I, um, I, I wanted to um, introduce this notion of the Trinity because you, you, I, think, I think you know after our class that there's not an aspect of the Divine Comedy that isn't governed by the by the belief in the Trinity. It's everywhere. It permeates the whole book, right? Three canticles, Inferno, Purgatorio, Perdiso. Each one is divided into three, the three sections of hell, right? The incontinent, the violent, the fraudulent. Purgatorio will have the same divisions. We're about ready to get there, and, and Perdiso will. It's his way of showing. I, and, and by the way, this is the, this is the beauty of it. We go through the, that book not even aware of it. How many of you are aware, you know, you're reading a story. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. It's only when you step back or hear somebody say it that you go, holy cow, it was there. And isn't that, isn't that faithful to life? We go through life. Trinity's nowhere around. It's all of us together. But it's there. Everywhere. Um, I want to come to that because that's what we did last time. But... Remember the, all the various ways in which the Trinity is present, the canticles, the structures. I think most importantly in the um, Terza Rima rhyme scheme. Remember A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D, E. The, the beauty of that is it, it's a, it's a triform thing. It's a poetic you know, stanza. But it, it's the same, A, B, A, 
you know, it, the um, first and last lines rhyme. The middle one will be picked up in the next stanza. So it's always the same, always the same in structure and changing, moving forward. So it's still and moving. That's the definition of the still point. It's still and moving. So in the very structure of the, of the rhyme itself, we're experiencing the Trinity even if we weren't aware of it while we were reading. We, it's, it's impossible in this because this is an English translation. But it's important to know that. Okay. Um, last time I gave two arguments for the existence of God. There are two of Thomas's five arguments in the opening of the Summa. Um, one was from motion and one was contingency. And I want to just quickly pick that up and then offer a third perspective this morning. Remember, the argument from motion, one of the definitions of nature is um, motion. It's what nature is. It's something in motion. Things coming into being, reaching their peak, passing out of being. And, um, but the argument from motion is this, and, and Aristotle was the first one to make it. So Thomas is picking up a lot of his thinking from Aristotle. Aristotle's just amazing, um, more amazing than Plato. Um, the argument is, um, we can't understand nature, something that's in motion, without understanding what put it in motion. When you hit a cue ball and do another one, it goes into a pocket. You can say, if I do this, it'll move this, you know, that'll happen. Um, um, but the problem with that argument is that um, each moved thing implies another thing that moved it. So if you're looking for an explanation, you'll be caught in an infinite regress. You'll just keep going back. Aristotle understood that. Um, he said to make it, to get to come up with any explanation, real explanation, you have to go back until you come to something that in itself is not moved. We call that God. He's the unmoved mover. Okay? Nothing caused him because if it did, it would be greater than God. And God is that then which is nothing else is greater. Okay, so the argument from contingency is exactly the same thing. Everything in the world is contingent. So if you want to look at the formation of a cloud, you look at the air currents, the earth temperature, and the and the way they intermix to produce these things. But then you have to reach a point where you say, but in order to understand those, I have to go back to contingencies that produce them. So it's exactly like the argument in motion. Everything is contingent upon something else. Okay, if that's so, it means we'll be caught in an infinite regress. We won't explain it because in itself it has something before it. This is all clear, yeah? Yeah, sure. Okay. So the only way the only way to understand contingency um, is to go back to something that itself is not contingent, that is complete in itself. We call that God. Um, okay. I hope, God, I hope, um, you know that one of the underlying purposes of what we're doing here, for me, certainly for me, um, trusting that this isn't going to seem pretentious, um, my hope is that every one of us working with these things will be better able to go to the world and make a defense of our faith. The reason will be more capable of supporting faith and, and reason itself will be helped by our faith because reason alone 
can be self-destructive. You can give yourself a reason for not thinking, you know, cutting your head off. But here, certainly my hope is that, that part of what we're doing is learning to see things more clearly so we can make it better defensive. We can take it to the world when we're talking with people. Or so these two arguments, um, the argument from motion, the argument from contingency. Interesting thing about the argument from contingency, and let me just say this for a moment. Um, I'm, we're going to get to Dante of a second, trust me. The interesting thing, this is stunning to me, just stunning to me. Scientists today um, refer to what they call the Big Bang as the first thing to explain everything else. Okay? I hope everybody understands how absurd that is. Because the Big Bang itself is contingent. What produced it? It's a contingency. It's a chance thing. I mean, it's attempting to explain chance in the world. If you look at that, one of the things you have to come away with is with all the great things that science gives us, and it does, we can't deny them, we shouldn't take it away. But when science tries to explain its beginnings, origins, where things come from, it's, it's always going to, unless it goes to natural philosophy, it'll always be crippled. So what we're, what we're being offered that people accept as science is myth. That's a myth. It's as much mythic as the Homeric gods. It's an attempt on the part of reason to explain contingency in the world. But the Big Bang itself is a chance event. What produced it? We don't, you know. So until you, until you go to ultimate ends, we will always, in some ways, be undercutting reason, what we do with our powers of reason. Um, now, one of the beauties of what Eliot did with the still point, that, that in one sense, <laughs> is all the more powerful because it comes in poetry. Remember, he, he explained that still point as the, as the condition that exists everywhere in the world because he showed it in a vase, um, in a dance, in a circle, in a stairway. So he showed it in a number of artifacts, man-made things, but he also showed it in motion in a dance, because I made the argument, remember, if a couple is doing a, a movement, um, if, if every movement, every gesture, every turn, every jump implies an equipoise, a point of balance. If they get out of balance with that, they collapse. Imagine a world in which you, you're, you're, a, you're a tennis player and you're hitting a ball against the backboard. Imagine what you would think of the world if you hit it against the backboard and when it came back, it took a right turn. What would you think of the world? Flat. <laughs> I'd, I'd be, anyway, you know where, the, I mean, um, Newton came up with a certain explanation for mo motion and things like that, and, and all, I mean, all scientists do. And they're important in, in whatever way they manage to focus, to explain by a concept, a, a law, some facet about nature. If you take Eliot's what he's doing, he's not a scientist, he's a poet. You have to say that he's coming as close to a scientist because he's showing something that exists everywhere. Now remember, I, I said, I'm, this is anticipating the Paradiso, because in the Paradiso, Dante's going to look back from the Empyrean, the back of the universe, and see at, at the center, from, from the, a material perspective, the world and not moving, because that's where death is. 
when he looks in Beatrice's eyes, who's looking, she's looking at God, he sees a completely different image. It's, it's an inversion of the first one. He sees that the point at the center of the universe is moving so fast, it's still. It's exactly like the center of a wheel. With every um, um, heaven, every planet in its orbit, um, moving less and less fast until it gets to the end. It's his way of saying God is at the center of everything. And I read those lines, remember, from Boethius who said, the closer you are to the center, the closer you are to stability and peace. And I, I'm trusting everybody knows that. You know that if we get so caught up in the world, our desires that we keep wanting things, it's like we're on the periphery of that circle, constantly moving. I'm trusting we've all had this experience. And at some point we want to say stop enough and pull back. To, to, I mean the image we use is to center ourselves. Because the closer you are to God, the closer you are to Christ, the closer you are to a peace. The closer you are to a still point. So what Eliot's doing um, is like what a scientist does, except he does it in lines of poetry, and he does it in a, in a, with a variety of examples that makes us aware this still point is not just here or here or here. If it's here and here and here and here, it's everywhere. Because if it weren't, science couldn't do its work, because its, it's, its aim is to constantly uncover laws, the order and beauty of them. Yeah, every good scientist will say that. Um, it's everywhere. Um, conceptually, we may get at it differently. A physicist may come at it, you know, differently from a biologist or a, you know, but it's there. All poetry implies it. The order, the beauty. The last thing, and then uh, the one of St. Thomas's definitions of um, the goodness of a thing is that everything is good insofar as it consists of a mode, a form, and an order. Read my book and you'll give a fuller explanation. A mode, a form, and an order. The mode is the certain disposition of something. A man is white or black. The form is its operation, what it does. Its order is its, the beauty that it's attained or the order. There it is. Everything in nature is composed of these three elements. Insofar as any, a crawfish, a crab, a tiger, a tree, a human, every one of us is defined by those three principles. So the Trinity is everywhere around us. Remember that I said that one of St. Thomas's best, oh here, one of St. Thomas's best examples was um, that each thing has being, it is, participates in being, and you know being is I am, and that's the ultimate source of all being. Think about it, a tree has being, yeah? Um, a wolf has being, a flower has being, they are, and yet they're completely different. And they share in being, then what's the source of their shared life? If it isn't being itself. So everything in nature has being, um, and it also has a power for knowing and loving. Now this is, the, this is from the human person. He, he says the most perfect example of the Trinity um, lies in human beings because we image it. We are, we know, 
we love. Those are the three qualities that define God. Yeah, I am, he knows, he loves. What did his knowledge of himself produce? The Son. What did the love between the Father and Son produce? Or beget? It didn't beget. It's it's aspired there. It's, It's the motion of the will. Love. It's the Holy Spirit. And he says, everything in nature, a, a, a sunflower, has being. The apprehensive power doesn't exist in the sunflower. It doesn't know. But there's an apprehensive power in it by virtue of the apprehensive power of the one who made it. Yeah? Is that clear? The, knowing of, the knowingness of God, his power to know, Um, created this thing so it has its own purpose. So when the sun moves across the sky, the sunflower follows it. So the apprehensive power of the sunflower isn't in him, it's in the one who made it. But it's reflected in him. In human beings, it is in us because we're the ones most created in his image. So the sunflower has being, it has an apprehensive power in it from the creator, and it loves because, that is, St. Thomas would have defined that as the appetite of everything, right? It, it long. Everything in creation moves. It's, in, his, in his world, it would have been loving, the good. So when the sun moves across the sky, what does it do? Moves because it's only as it moves into that that it will fulfill its own goodness. When plants fall from a tree, they go to the earth, it rains. Everything in nature shows an inclination towards the good. Thomas would have called that the appetitive, what we call the appetites or desire. That's why in the whole Christian Middle Ages, it was clear, it was a fundamental principle in the way people thought that, what, um, that there's this affinity between everything in creation. We have, as humans, we have an affinity with the whole animal world. We have an affinity with the vegetative world. We have a vegetative, a repetitive, knowing, you know, all those faculties are in our own soul. Aristotle said that in his work, On the Soul. He said everything in nature has a soul. We're, we're different because we have a rational faculty. So, the Trinity exists everywhere. And all of these people are showing it. And it's, it's more consciously a part of Dante's structure <coughs> because he's far more aware of it than we are today. Let me stop. Did I... Let me stop. I had a thought a minute ago and I lost it. Let me stop. Any questions? Or I know this is sort of heady stuff. It's, we're we're going to get back to Dante in a second. But I just don't want anybody looking past the Trinity. You know, we can look at it and say what the Trinity But it'll be an abstraction. For Dante, it was never an abstraction. I do have a question. One thing you said when you were talking about the wheel. About what? About the wheel. The wheel, yeah. And you said as you move out, it gets slower, but in my mind, it gets faster. That's Dante. Remember, there's two um, opposite perspectives. When he's, when he's looking back at the material world from the, from the um, back of the universe, from the prima mobile, Dante's understanding... Thanks for clarifying that, Demi. Dante's understanding is, here's the world, and the world for him is like a tree whose roots are in God. 
And the first circle, called the prima mobile, mm -hmm. is the one that's moving so fast that it imparts a motion to all the planets. And as you approach the center, everything's in motion except the Earth. The Earth is still. Um, it's a place of death. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna look more closely at this when we get to the Paradiso, because then we're going to look at the planets. But when he looks at it spiritually, um, he, the image is inverted. <coughs> Beatrice is looking at God, and God's looking at the Earth. What he sees is the opposite. The, at the center of the universe is this still point that's, move, that's moving so fast that it's still, and it's imparting emotion to every other planet. So from that perspective, all the other planets are moving around it less and less, or more and more slowly. So there's two, it's like two cones intersecting, two, two views. So... Did I not answer? What? No, because, because as, as you get closer to God, you get, I mean, if you use the wheel as an analogy, yeah. um, the closer you are to God, the center, the center, the slower things would go. Because if, if this is the focal point, you're going to have more chaos out exactly. here. Exactly. Um, that was the point that I was trying to make when I okay. said, when we get so caught, is going to call that outer rim fate. It's fixed for people. They get so caught. It's like the destiny of the pagan world, fate. When you get so caught up in that world, you're trapped by it. You can't move. There's no freedom. There's no peace. You know, you want this, you want this, you want, you don't stop. I mean, you, you'll, you'll never rest. That's where I'm going right now, t towards hell. But you'll never rest. It's only as you approach the center that's moving so fast that it's still, that the motion you will have will be a peace. It will be a stillness. Um, Boethius, when we get to Boethius, um, he'll make that really clear, but he's saying exactly what you are. Okay. I, I think, I think I was clear on it, wasn't I, that most of us had that experience, I'm sure all of us have, that sometimes the world gets so hectic, mm -hmm. and, and at some point, don't you have to say enough, and it's not like you have to go through four years of a trauma, you reach a point, you go, enough, mm -hmm. you step back, it's not as if the world changes in that moment because the world is still doing what it did. But you're saying enough, no more. And you still yourself. I mean, you say, maybe you make a prayer you know, to Christ. Um, but you, you make an effort to enter into that peace because if you don't, you're going to go unscrambled. It's just, you know, it's going to keep going. I'm trusting everybody relates to that <laughs> because I'm sure we all know it. So, to that? Yes, I, I think there's another thing though, Bob, because I agree. Everything is fine except, and I have to go back and reread this when we get to the Paradiso, except that the center of the wheel is the thing that causes the motion, but itself is not moving. Right. Just as, so God should be that center of the wheel that isn't moving. <laughs> And you're saying it's going so fast it looks like it isn't moving, and that's the part that for me, I just have, I have to go back and reread that. Well, Donnie's not going to tell you any more than that than you're saying yourself. Let me explain it this way. I'm not sure how else to answer your question, but remember, God is love. There's no desire in God. Right. So there's None. a power. Wait, hold on. Of love. There's no, there's no desire. Because desire itself assumes something incomplete. You want something you desire. As soon as you get it, you think you're going to be. My soul is restless until it rests in thee. Yeah. The, our desires keep us pushing. 
In God, there's no desire, there's only love. Everything he does is complete. He doesn't need anything. Um, he's not competing with anybody. There's no rivalry. There's no pride. He's all love. So whatever he brings to anything he does will be love. Love is without motion. It's what the, it's, I mean, this is, I think this is the paradox. I mean, if that's what... Um, I don't even know how, I myself don't even know how to describe what goes on between the persons of the Trinity. They're perfectly indwelling. There's a love, but somehow we have to understand it is a motion that isn't in motion. I don't know how else to, it's a movement. If I don't see, I, I mean, I, I find it hard then to go there because, um, because love is complete. The love is complete in each one of the persons of between them. It's not incomplete. I read that, that passage from my, St. Thomas said that, God, how do you put it? I'm going I'm to bring it because it's that that the each person oh boy I'm going to have to bring it because it is so complex he says it really simply um, each one indwells in the other there's no incompleteness completeness in any of them there cannot be right Christ is as complete as the Father because he is his image that's why we say one God not three gods. We say one God, complete in itself, Godhead, but three persons. Wrap your head around that. You know, they are, um, God is not less complete by not having the Son and the Spirit in him because they are one with him. They indwell in each other, yet they're three persons. So there's this paradox of some kind of movement, I, I find it hard to explain, but which is still. So... Dante's not going to go into it. He's just going to give us that image. You know, we have to. I'll bring that passage from St. Thomas because it's an amazing passage. But this was what we covered. The reason for going into it is this. Boethius called the circle fate, the, the, the perimeter of the circle fate. He called the center God, the substance of God, um, the unmoved mover, moving imparting movement to everything else, but himself unmoved. Um, if you look at hell, there's nobody in hell who isn't trapped. Absolutely trapped. There's no freedom. They're there because they chose to be there. That's what they wanted more than God, and that's what they've got. And the condition that they live in, that is, there's an on, that present is ongoing. It will never change. Right? It's not going to go anywhere. It's, it's permanent. They're in a condition of restless movement. They will, it, whatever longings they have, whatever desires, whatever anger, will never be fulfilled, never answered. They live in that torment in, in a, a now that is forever. So it's like they're on that periphery, constantly in motion and getting nowhere. <clears throat> That's hell. From this perspective, To look at this one more way before we leave it. Remember, well here, according to Dante, this is so good, it goes with these arguments of motion and existence. Um, God is at the center of things and he's the first cause, right? The unmoved mover, the uncontingent source of contingencies. Just, right? He's the unmoved mover. He, he gives motion to everything. He's the first cause, okay? 
So he rules over the order of first causes. We call that order heaven. When we get to the Paradiso, we're going to be seeing souls in motion and absolutely at rest. Wait till we get there. Um, he's the first mover. So he's, the, he's the, the center of what we call first causes. Act, post, see, motion, form. The world that we live in is defined in terms of um, second causes. That is, this is the world of contingency and motion. Okay, we can remember if you're in a world of second causes, you'll go on in an infinite. You'll be on a chain, an infinite world of regress. I mean, an infinite regress. You, to explain one thing, you have to go to another. To explain that, you have to go to until you come to a first cause. We live in a world of first causes. No, which? Second Sorry, second thanks. Second. Calvin took that away <laughs> because he said there's n well, there's an iron. Calvin said everything is predetermined. He, he said, it's irresistible. You can't deny God. You're, you're either among the saved or you're among the damned. But everything is predestined. He took away free will. So for Calvin, this is a world defined um, in terms of first causes where there's no freedom. So it's not uncommon for somebody to say, I lost my job. God did that. This is what he wants of me. I got into a car accident. God did that. This is what he wants of me. You know, there's no sense that we live in a world of freedoms or secondary causes. We have a measure of freedom in a world of contingency, of secondary causes. And so we're free to say, I'm walking out of class right now, or sing a tune, or kick a stone, or whatever you want to do. Sing on the way to the hospital, you know, out of nowhere. You just, you want to express your joy, you sing. We live in a world of secondary causes. We have, there's a degree of freedom. There are certain things that are determined. They're part of our nature. But we have a freedom that the rest of things in nature don't. Um, in hell, um, that's changed. In hell, everybody is caught, trapped. They made a choice um, against something greater, and that's what they have on this ongoing now. So, um, Dante knows that we're in a world of adventure. We make choices, but as human beings, I said this at the beginning, we're going to see it at the beginning of Purgatory next week. Dante is the concept, he and Shakespeare, the, what's fundamental to their view of man is that man is responsible for himself. His choices matter. We can make excuses for ourselves forever. He made me do it. She made me do it. I did it for this. I know that there's some truth, but at some point we have to say, no matter what anybody does, we still, no matter how painful it is to go against the world, we still have to say no or yes. Take that away, and we've lost the greatest thing that God gave us. So Dante, everything he does assumes that. People are in hell. Because they chose, God did not put them there. They, they're, they're there by a choice um, of their own. So. so we're about ready to come to the end of the Inferno, um, just in case I, we're running out of time at the end, which <laughs> I'll do again. Next week, the first eight cantos of the Purgatorio, okay? Because we're going to start the Purgatorio next week.
But now let me let me turn to let's see. Let me turn to let me see if I can introduce it with this. Let me turn to um, circle um, eight and nine. <coughs> circle eight is front simple, and circle nine is front complete. Fred asked uh, a really good question again um, when everybody was gathering. And his image was, or his question was, Dante's a realist. By the way, he is. And he's a realist in the sense, same sense that Thomas is. He, he stands to the world knowing that what's there is real. He doesn't want to use his mind to change it. Everything about his treatment of the contraplacements makes that clear, right? He's like a doctor. He looks at an act and is very clear about its effects. The nature of that act, that choice, lust, gluttony, whatever it is. He's a realist. He sees things as they are. Then how in the world, I mean, he's got these demons, you know, the angels or the guardians of um, this circle. We, we move from a level in which the guardians are these mythic creatures from the past. But now we've entered a, a world more directly involving the deception, the self self-chosen deceptions of the intellect, fraud, where the person is willfully using his mind to twist things, to make things something they're not, to lie, okay? The guardians, appropriately for this level, are demons. Why? Because they're angelic intellects. That's what they are. They're all intellect. They have no bodies. So we're looking at intellectual sins and appropriately the demons of the guardians. So when we look at the guardians here, I don't think there's any sense of disproportion, but when we get here, Fred's question was, how do we explain these giants? Because Dante's so reasonable, so faithful to what is, how do you make sense of these giants? Because they seem so unreal. They belong to a fictional world. Yeah. My answer to that is the same, the same as it was to um, Minos, or Garion, or... Um, the Minotaur, you know, all the guardians of the lower level, these mythic creatures. Every one of those images, the Minotaur, the, the, the Medusa, um, Garion, you name it, Minos, um, all of them. Every one of those um, creatures is an image, an exact faithful image of something in the soul of man. I've been arguing that along. Did it when we did the Odyssey and we were looking at Calypso and Circe and the Cyclops, these giant one-eyed figures. They're images of something in us. If, if you, you all know the story of Jack of the Beanstalk <laughs> and the giant. What's that giant an image of? All those images of dwarfs or giants are exact images of something in the soul. In the case of the giants, it's clear that they're images of this inordinate pride um, what one writer would have called the, the gigantesque character of, you know, the human person that we can make ourselves so big, so out of proportion, so out of proportions to the limits that we have as humans. All the realists would say, <clears throat> one sign of wisdom in our life is our ability to accept our own limits. Hector, I mean, we can go through the whole list. Wherever you have these instances of somebody wanting to be more than he is or something other than he is, you've got an image of an inordinate pride. It's like the giant in us. It's an image of a disproportion. The Lestrigonese queen in Odysseus, is, or the Odyssey is a good one. Remember, she's bigger than a mountain. 
And I remember going through that and I said, because I was laughing because I was thinking, I got so used to thinking it, but I know it was probably a new thing for you guys. Can you imagine a woman being bigger than a mountain? I think almost everybody said no. And I, I can remember, I think the example I gave, I can remember reading, going online once and reading, it was Zaza Gabor, who probably won't mean anything to you, but a flashy Hollywood, got stopped by a police officer. She just wanted to run him up and down. I mean, what you saw was this image of this Hollywood woman who, who thought she was bigger than the rest of the world and didn't have to answer to anybody. She's a perfect image of a woman trying to mean more than she is. She wouldn't accept her limits. Um, so, Fred, for me, the answer to that, they're all, you can say they're mythic images, but they're mythic images showing in a visible image something that's invisible, that's, that's, um, that reflects something of ourselves, the effects of what we do. Um, because remember, remember when we were talking about that, that scene in Peter, um, remember the, what I'm calling the founding, the taking of the auspices when Christ said, nobody told you that was God. All the other disciples had to look at Peter and say, I mean, they wouldn't have seen anything. He's the same man. 30 seconds before it, he was Peter. 30 seconds after, they're looking at the same figure. If we're understanding the passage, at least I think what I'm seeing there is right. We're watching a man completely change. He carries the Holy Spirit in him. Um, that will give him a courage and a humility. A humility he never had before. That's after, no, that's before the betrayal. Yes. Right? Yeah. Peter had to learn to see who he was before he could go on to do what he did. Christ had to know that. Christ had to know that. When we were involved in Daytop, and Suzanne and I, when our kids, um, I've told you about this before, it was a in-residence um, center for people, kids who drank or drugs, and we hadn't realized that the kids were drinking, and, and they got caught. And um, what was the motto, Doc? Um, the giant of our dreams, the dwarf, the dwarfs of our fears. Isn't that right? The giant of our, the giant, the giant. They, what the program was asking is that every kid, and the adults, every person face the giant of our dreams, our one wanting to exceed our limits, or the dwarf of our fears, the way we cower from things. I love those two images. They were so right, so, so truthful in their power. The giant of our dreams, the dwarf of our fears. It's like a 12-step program, I think, that you have to, you have to learn to see the extremes in yourself, the things that you're afraid of, what they, the way they shrink you, the way you, the, the, the aggrandizing quality, you know, qualities in your character to want to do too much. Okay, did, I don't know, did, did you have a follow-up question? Or you? No, I'm, I'm good because, you know, it kind of fits in with, you know, you, you, you see it, all the time in our world where someone gets to some point where they feel so powerful they're above everything else and then something and I won't mention yeah, any no, specific yeah. names yeah. but you just have to yeah. pick up Google News or something yeah. that's there all the time but yeah. I mean just recently you know something very simple just brings them completely down yeah. it's just it, it makes sense yeah. 
Yep, yep. I'm glad you guys are doing this. You guys all have courageous hearts. No, you do or you wouldn't be here looking at hell. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing the contrast between Dante's Satan and Milton's Satan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Quickly, uh, two sentences. Flesh that woods. Well, I, you know, in, in the beginning in particular, you get this image of Beginning Satan, of? Uh, Milton. Milton. You get this image of Satan as being, you know, bigger than... I hesitate to say life, but well, I was going to say yes, yes. Uh, in this, in this image of, of Satan and Dante, it's I could have read a more miserable <laughs> and more, more ridiculous fallen, more and fallen, more ridiculous, more ridiculous entity. Yes, uh, it's just just amazing, you know that you, you sit there and well, if that's Satan, I mean how. How could he be screwing up my life every day? Because <laughs> he's got demons out of the world working for him. That I will so get it there. It's just a huge contrast. Yes, yes. I'm glad you brought it up. Okay. Okay. Let's very quickly. You know that when Dante leaves the level of the violence, that Garrigan takes him down to the seventh level of what we call fraud simple. Fraud simple's um, distinguished from fraud complex because. In the kind of fraud that we see here, the fraud involves the betrayal of a greater trust. This is a more impersonal world, so the betrayal isn't as great, but clearly it's great, okay? Did I, did I introduce the notion of Walpurgis Night? I don't think I did last. Well, here, I want uh, to, before we go into these last two levels, I want to introduce, uh-oh, this notion of, Walpurgis Night. Walpurgis Night is from the German Walpurgis Nacht. I'm not, I can't speak German, but something like that. The, the name's given to the night of the 30th of April, the eve of the first day of St. Walpurgis, an 8th century abbess in Germania. In Germanic folklore, Walpurgis Nacht, literally, the witch's night, that what that term, that's what that term means, takes place before the spring festival, i.e. before Easter. And what happens on that Walpurgis night is an orgy. It's a black mass. I, I, I would be surprised if people who did that didn't seek out wafers and use them with the understanding that they were blaspheming Christ, whether they had them or not. Um, the whole purpose was um, a, black, a black Sabbath, a black mass. Um, so it, it, it would unfold with rituals and processions and offering sacrifices and then ending in orgies in which people made it in costumes, humans and demons. Um, Faust's play, or I'm sorry, Goethe's play, Faust, has a section called The Wasburgus Night in which the same thing takes place. It, those of you who've read Nathaniel Hawthorne, you know, in school, I don't know. You may have read the story, Young Goodman Brown. Young Goodman Brown is one of his more famous stories. In that, this is Hawthorne in America. He would have known this stuff. Um, in, in the story, Young Goodman Brown, Young Goodman, <laughs> Hawthorne's got this habitual allegorizing ten tendency in all of his stories. He's called a romance writer because he takes us into worlds that seem strange. He, he, was trying to, he was trying to answer the naturalism that, be, that was set in motion in the 16th century, that 
that denied that there was anything supernatural, any dimension beyond. So all of his works have that romance quality to them. Goodman Brown is just one of his short story. In the story, young Goodman is on his way, and um, there's a figure who greets him <laughs> on the path and gives him directions. That's a typical motif. It's a, it's a standard element in, in this genre, this kind of thing. And he travels through the um, through the day and, and comes into the evening when he comes across um, a group celebrating what looks like a, a festive occasion. They're celebrating something. And as he looks more closely, he sees the minister, his wife, all the respectable people in town, but he sees that they're engaged in a black mass. And these are the people that he's most respected in his life, he's most looked up to. So it's Hawthorne's critique of, of the respectability. You know, we, Melville, Faulkner. And it's a crushing moment for him, and I'm sorry, it's been so, so, so long since I saw Either a ribbon flies off of his wife, and I don't think that's, it probably came off of him, but I th if I recall, it's a pink ribbon that flies off, and, it's a, and I think his words are, there goes my faith, or we're, we're to understand that that's his faith. That in that moment, when he sees that evil, that he's been undeceived, it's a disillusioning moment, that all the people he thought were these good people turn out to have these, this black side, his faith is gone. It's, it's in some ways a critique of a world that defines itself in respectability that does not have the strength when that respectability collapses to go on. His faith is gone. So he goes back to the town sad and heavy. He's going to encounter his wife and we, we never see what happens. But So the Walpurgisburg, Walpurgis motif, theme, has been an important one through literature. It was given a, um, a really important place in uh, Goethe's Faust. It seems to me one of the ways in which we're meant to look at hell is exactly like that. Um, souls in every imaginable kind of punishment immersed in excrement, shit, surrounded by and taking into themselves foul smells, every form of torture, maiming, mutilations, the practice of necromancy. You know from your reading that souls rise, they emerge out of nothing and return. They become one thing and lose their identity and then become another. It's as if they come into life and then die. And all of this consistent because remember, God made them, they're in being. So whatever they did with their choices are theirs in this ongoing now. Is that clear? They can never take their lives. You can't take a soul away. You can't. Um, you're in being. So um, what we're watching is this, the great paradox is a state of decay that's constant. Things decay, but they remain in being. Um, diseases, bod bodies decaying, disappearing, and reforming again in order to suffer punishments on an ongoing eternal basis all from choice, choosing to have the sin disorder instead of God. So what Dante's showing us in hell is a nightmare world. It's the world of a nightmare. It's the worst disorders of our souls caught. Um, okay. He's kind of exposing the fraud of the whole concept of respectability. 
explain that because well, because there, I mean, when you look at respectability, it, it, it's a moving thing, right? It's it's always relative to something, mm -hmm. and the fact that that what it's relevant to is is by its very nature incomplete, then then there's always going to be an element of fraud in whatever anyone defines as respectability. Yeah, God, it just shakes me. Yeah. Oh, it does. It really does. You know, we I mean, we uncovered this in Faulkner's town. That, that, that um, remember that that it's the respectability that Flem uses to hide himself. The other way of putting this is respectability will always have an enabling quality. Always, it's going to be self-protective. And Fred was right on, because remember, according to Calvin, respectability is the indication that you're among the saved. Right. So you, so you don't see anything more. The cult, they don't have holiness to refer to. Um, wait, sorry. Um, uh, Flynn Montgomery Snopes hid behind it. And your, your word, that's where it's... Um, the interesting thing about respectability is because it, doesn't, it encourages people to measure themselves by what they see, the appearances of people. Hawthorne cut through that. Um, one of the things that happens when we have those moments with our children, drinking too much or whatever's going on, we have to suddenly say, holy cow, what's wrong? What am I not doing here? What am I doing wrong? You know, because if you grow, I just think about, you know, say the women who have abortions today. I don't believe that 99% of those women go into this thinking, I'm going to kill this child. They don't. I mean, they're, they're in the cave. They, they have a mindset that in their own mind makes it okay to do this. So that's as clear an indication I know of the way in which the cave traps people. This is the way things are until something happens when it gets shattered. And you have to say for those moments, however they painful they are, thank God, because if you don't have them, you're stuck. Fred's example, um, because they're complete in themselves. They think they're complete, um, but they're not. The modern world, this is one of the reasons Dante is so valuable, the modern world has lost a sense of final ends. It's a major critique of my book, um, in the center of my book where I'm dealing with Charles Dickens, who I love. So Dickens lived at a time when respectability was everything, and, and Dickens' feelings towards it was mixed. He was a man of that world, and all of his writings, more and more mature as he goes along, show that there's something wrong with this world this respectable world. All the major writers of the 19th century are dealing with it. We come to the 20th century, we finally get out of that respectability mode, and you've got T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis, Chesterton, all, Dorothy Sayers. You've got all these Christian writers who finally break out of it. Um, so the modern world has lost the sense of final ends. Dante has not. He's put us in a world of final ends, so we have a way of judging the cave respectability, whatever goes on here. We're seeing the final effects of our choices. And, and what we're seeing here in level seven is this nightmarish world with all that, this decay. And I think, finally, before we look at it, it seems to me one of the things Dante's asking us to do is to, is to see, this is the underworld of the modern commercial republic. This is really the underworld to it. All these horrors are the spiritual realities that you don't see when you make the world everything because you have no other way by which 
to judge it, to see into it. So the work is prophetic in that sense. Mm-hmm. Is everybody okay? Does, is this clear? Okay, I just would like you all to go home tonight and have a good night's rest. <laughs> God. Oh, God. How's that for shaking up everybody's life? I hope you know, including my own. Oh, God, it shakes me. Okay. I very, very quickly... I just want to look at the contrapasses because I don't want to cover them individually. Um, the panders and seducers are whipped by devils. They encourage and exploited passions. <clears throat> they're being whipped to keep going. Flatters, they're covered with filth, excrement. That's what they did with their lives. Um, simoniacs, <clears throat> they're upside down in holes. It's like an inversion of the baptismal fount. They're, they were supposed to be blessed in their heads, blessed with water. Their feet are upside down, sticking out in fire, in flame. When you turn away from God's light, that light which is everywhere, there's no place where it won't be, it's being, that light will be turned to fire. It will become a source of torment. When you move towards it, and by the way, interesting, at the level of lustful, when Dante passes from the levels of penance to the earthly parent, that is when he returns to the garden, he has to pass through um, um, an opening of fire, purged by fire. When you turn against God, that light becomes punitive. When you move towards Him, it becomes a grace, but very often painful. It's a purifying fire. For us to be purified means we have to accept the pain of our sins, genuinely take them on and do something. Soothsayers, um, um, <clears throat> their heads are turned around. They presume to know the, the future when they didn't, and now their heads are turned backwards, so they can't see what's in front of them. The barriters are covered in boiling pitch. The money, they stick to it because money stuck to them when they were in the world. The hypocrites are wearing leaden mantles. They're gilded on the outside, they're gold, to show to give this appearance of beauty or richness, inside they're leaden. They will walk heavily um, through their world. Um, thieves, they're constantly undergoing a transformation. If you, it's, we're going to look at it because it's one of the most amazing. <coughs> they, they interchange with each other. They actually lose their substance. One of the souls becomes entirely another. We're going to get to that because, it, to me, it's worth looking at more closely. The evil counselors, they're concealed in fire. Here's where we're going to see um, Ulysses and Diomedes. Because remember, Ulysses is the one who concocted the plan to destroy Troy, to deceive them, and to make a place for the Trojan horse. And sores of discord, these are the ones that um, they're, they're mutilated, cut up, because they cause divisions. They're the ones who promote heresies. Mohammed will be here. The modern American audience will not like it because the source of Islam is here. Falsifiers are um, stricken by diseases, leprosy, delirium, madness, dropsy, high fever. It's, we're watching things decay, disintegrate. Dante watches them decay right in front of his eyes. It's like a disease unfolding. Ooh. 
I'm going to take something to keep myself awake tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Fraud, simple. Um, they're all in ice. There's four levels. Um, You're and talking about fraud, fraud, fraud complex. complex. Or sorry, sorry, thanks. Fraud complex. Um, Cana is named after Cain for killing his brother. The first real intimate betrayal. Antonora, Antonora of Troy, was, um, who betrayed his city to the Greeks. Ptolemaea was a captain of Jericho, and he invited Simon the high priest and his sons to a banquet and then killed them. So he betrayed guests. And Judica, named after Judas, this is a betrayal of special lords, the most important kind of relationships. Um, um, Brutus and Cassius are there because, remember, they killed Caesar. Who's there? Remember Christ saying, given to Caesar, given to God. Um, so Judas and, and uh, Cassius are perfect images because they betrayed their temporal lord, their political lord, and you know that Judas there because he betrayed Christ. So, um, And in every one of those last four sections, they're all buried in ice. It's not fire. This is so interesting. Dante goes against the traditional image of fire. He puts them in ice, I think, because it's his way of showing how cold and impersonal and machine-like. Um, and the differences between them as he goes through is that in the early um, levels, the heads of the sinners are bent down so they can have relief from any grief they express with tears. But as he goes on, he finds the heads tilted back so they get no relief. The ice forms crust. And towards the end, one, the sinner will say, take the crust from my eyes, and Dante makes a bargain with him and then um, um, doesn't fulfill it. We have to look at that to ask what Dante's doing. Okay, those are the contrapassos. Those, those are the, the effects that help us to see the real nature of the sin. Okay. Now, I'm going to just go through this quickly because I'm just going to pick out a couple. Um, turn to page 99. just to pick up this thought because I, I hope it sheds a light on this, the importance of free will and suffering. The, the traditional wisdom about suffering, by the way, that's going to be, remember, the theme of Boethius' work, Consolation of Flies, why does God allow good people to suffer and why does he allow evil people to prosper? You know, that seems so it seems like an indication of unjust God. And you know my own argument on that. My, my belief is that it can't be otherwise if God's going to protect our free will. Otherwise, he turns us into machines. Um, I think that's where Calvin went oh, just horribly, horribly wrong. Um, and it's, I added this because I saw it late and saw it actually just probably in the last year. I think he also does it because by allowing us to suffer our choices, he makes us aware 
of the implications, the possible consequences of our choices because we get too cavalier in the way we use our minds. We don't see things enough. We take them for granted too much. So by allowing us to, to make decisions that are going to hurt us, he makes us far more aware of what a gift free our free will is, the importance of choices and what we do with them. Because we're so proud, you know, there's, there's such hubris. We take our, because we, there, we, it's such a gifted power, our reason. We're so capable with it. We can do so many things. So it's so easy to overlook that gift, you know. So by allowing us to suffer the burdens, he makes us more aware of that power and its consequences, that we, we can't be cavalier about it. We have to be care, we have to be careful. And the other thing is that by allowing us to in, suffer these trials, um, it can be an should be an encouragement for us to turn to him. Because you know, remember, the city comes into existence in a spirit of self-sufficiency. It's man's attempt to live without God. Our trials, hopefully, help turn us towards him. So when we suffer, that we'd say, wake up. And then say, um, help me, or, you know, I need help. Um, in hell, there's none of that. They are stuck in their pride, all of them. So um, in, the, in the first circle are the um, panders and seducers. Jason is there because of what he did with um, Medea, I think. Um, page 99, the level of flatterers. Robert, can you do Canto? Canto um, um, 18, page 99, Canto 18. Uh, this is the level of They're um, <laughs> soaked in excrement. Let me be nice. <laughs> Dante's very clear about, um, um, he's top 99. There we were, and from where I stood, I saw souls in the ditch plunged into excrement that might have well been flushed from our latrines. We're supposed to see that visually, and I hope smell it. My eyes were searching hard along the bottom, and I saw somebody's head so smirched with shit, you could not, I so love him. <laughs> but we're going to find the same thing in Chaucer. They, they, they were, we're such a puritanical world. They had no scruples about using a word like that because it was natural. I mean, we really have become puritanical in the last several hundred years. You could not tell if he were a priest or layman. Um, he identifies himself and then he goes down, um, go down a few lines, I'm stuck down here by all those flatteries that rolled unceasing off my tongue up there. He finished speaking and my guide began, lean out a little more and look hard down there so you can get a good look at the face of that repulsive, disheveled tramp scratching herself with shitty fingernails, spreading her legs while squatting up and down. God. That was the image that really came to me. <laughs> makes it what? That was not hard to visualize. <laughs> it is Thias, um, the whore, who gave this answer to her lover when he asked, Am I very worthy of your thanks? Very? Nay, incredibly so. I think our eyes have had their fill of this. They want to get away. Um, Thais, why is she here instead of up with the lustful? Remember, Dante. The first encounter of sin itself, act of sin, um, after the virtuous pagans, is lustful. And there he meets Francisca and Paula. They're there because of their lust. Why is Thais here? She's a whore. She's not just lusting. This is a business. 
Okay, but the, the level is fraud. So maliciousness of fraud. Yeah. Well, there's intent. There's, and then she's going to flatter him at the end. And which, which is, which happens all the time. Which is dis, <laughs> right? It's yeah. another whole issue. She wants to get, she wants to get a, a little bonus at the end. Boy, I've really said something loose at this table over here. It, it's here, I think, because um, it's a dishonest use of the intellect. Actively, Francisca doesn't see herself. But you know, she's not actively deceiving. Theus is. This guy's saying, um, "Do you think I was very good?" And she says, "Of course you were. You're, you're, you're the stud. I mean, whatever you, you know." Um, because what we're witnessing here at the level of fraud is um, is a more blatant um, expression of the dishonesty of the mind. That the mind will open, consciously twist something to make it so when it's not. So we've learned, like Dante, we now no longer have sympathy for the sinners. Well, you know, oh, God, I forgot. God, what we're going to see, right? There, there, there are a couple of places here. When he looks at the maimed and twisted, I, I got, I forgot, I got to find it. He's overcome with pity here, uh, but, but I, I'm glad you mentioned it because it's the last thing I want to cover before we quit today. Um, in the in the level of the um, seminists. He sees Nicholas, and he thought it was Boniface, but he learns that it isn't, and he's expecting, and you know that John Dante is going to take a lot of joy when Boniface the Pope gets there because he thinks he deserves hell. Um, I, I don't want to look at this, but I want to ask this question, because to me it's a serious one. Um, simony is the sin of selling church properties, church offices. Baratry is the, is the sin of um, selling political offices. Giving a judgment, an unjust just a judgment, or selling an office, even so. The church is a greater authority than the temporal order, right? The church is higher. Remember, we saw that when we started Milton, that the two swords, gods and Caesars, um, the soul and the body. The soul is higher in rank. Why does Dante put simony below, or I mean above, uh, bear tree? I had a thought on that subject, but I don't know what it's. Go ahead. Well, I don't want to press you, but you, you look at you look at the barriers. I mean, I you, know, you, you kind of put that in our own framework. It's kind of like a Supreme Court judge, okay? And you know, Catholics have this. We have this concept of the the impact of a sin, the the ongoing right. effect, uh, of, effect it, yeah, of it. Right. And the, the greater the sin, the larger the ongoing effect, and the harder it is to repent. Right answer. Yeah. So you, you look at you look at like a Supreme Court judge, for example. I mean, they ultimately decide whether it's okay to for abortion, for example. Mm -hmm. So the impact of that sin, if you will, can be prolific. Compare that Supreme Court to a pope. Well, it, a pope is maybe different in that sense, but it's still, it's, it's, it's still potentially uh, confined to the people who follow that Pope. And for the people who don't think the Pope is any different than anybody else, it, it, it doesn't, maybe doesn't matter. 
So yeah, yes, his reach is 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 large, but not as large perhaps as you know some of the other people that you know might be affected by like a Supreme Court judge, for example, because it goes on and on and on and on. That baby gets killed, then whoever that baby was going to become didn't happen, and whoever that baby's baby was going to become didn't happen. So ultimately, if you look at it. The, ma the magnitude of that sin is huge. Yeah. I hadn't thought about this, but but if what they're doing is selling property, that Bears. property, the, no, the or whatever they're called, um, the property can't be used for the church, but it doesn't have um, a purposeful, ongoing effect. I mean, this the property isn't by itself something that causes harm in the future. But you know they could have sold offices too. Priests were bought off. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then, then and, no, and, I, um, I don't know enough about them. Popes were given offices because they were of a family, so in a sense. Oh, yeah. Were, no, that. So. Yeah. I mean, that's part of my whole problem. Yeah. <laughs> that's a whole different discussion. No, it isn't. <laughs> as, as, soon as, the, we, as soon as we're in a perfect world, I mean, C.S. Lewis's great argument when you know, if we're looking for a, a perfect church or a search without sinners, good luck, because the minute you start one... <laughs> um, those are both interesting. Uh, the, the other thought that I would add to that, I'm, I'm not sure, because Dante was really clear, the, the Pope is the greatest authority in the world, and he can do the most harm, because his, um, his authority is universal, whereas political authority is usually confined to a country, a, a place. The, the only other thought that I had is that... Um, Simony was out in the open for the most part. You know, it was visible. You sold your office or sold your property or entered into a marriage, bought off, or took on an off office, bought off. But, um, um, but Beartree, by its very nature, is dishonest. It's undercover. It, it involves, I think, it involves a, um, um, a deception that's less visible. I think Simony become practice and out in the open. I mean, if I if I if I'm looking at this in terms of fraud, my my only guess, and I, this is just a you know I'm, I don't have any certainty about this, but that what's at what's at stake is a greater level of deception, either a deception of others or a self-deception on the part of the people by degrees as we get deeper and deeper. So my 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 wonder, the question that I have is whether he's not saying that Simony was far more accepted, far more in the open. But bear tree by its nature is undercover and deceiving. I just throw that out. Um, the hypocrites, page one twenty-three. They are. They have these leaden coats. Um, Caiaphas. Um, the interesting figure in that level is Caiaphas, because remember he's the one that sold um, sold out Christ. I would expect him to be a lot deeper. Yeah, right. I was surprised. At that. Yeah, um, he is laying prostrate on the ground, and all the souls walk on him. Um, he and um, that figure we saw earlier, Panius, 
and Vanny Fucci, who we're about to see in a second, to me are the most most representative of the defiance that's at the center of hell itself. Um, oh, sorry, it was 119 here. Or here, where? No, I'm sorry. No, it isn't. It isn't. Um, Are you looking for Caiaphas? Kind of, yeah, 127 I've got, but I'm not seeing it. Is it one? What do you have? 127? Starting at 117. 117. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There it is. Yeah, Caiaphas. Um, take a look at um, the. Th Actually, 119. This is funny. Um, Chiampolo, um, on page 121, I want to just look at this quickly. This is the level of the bearders, the, the grafters? Grifters. Grifters. Um, this is really funny for what it reveals about hell itself. Um, and you know, this is during that period where the, where the demons are going to make a suggestion to Virgil, and he's going to be downcast again because he got tricked. They lied to him, and he took their word and realizes later that he shouldn't, about the bulges that the rocks were broken everywhere. But if he'd continued to the next one, he would have found one not broken. But, and he's just absolutely downcast because he, was, he allowed himself to be tricked. And it's another instance of showing how fallible reason is. But here, they're watching this um, grifter um, deceive the demons. The top of 121, um, they stay in the pool and they try to jump out to get relief from it, but if they do, the demons catch them and whip them. So it's a severe punishment. Um, Giampolo says, 121, if you would like to see Tuscans or Lombards, the frightened shade took up where he left off, and have a talk with them, I'll bring some here. But the Malbranche must pick, must back up a bit, or else the shades won't risk a surfacing. I by myself will bring you a catch. So he's saying to the demon, because they take a joy in punishing. So he's saying, if you want more to punish, I'll bring them here. Just give me, because that's what I did in life. I trick people. <laughs> Even the demons don't see it coming. I trick people. So just step back a little bit. And one demon is saying, no, don't do that, because you'll jump. And, and um, he says, no, of course I'm not going to jump. I'm going to bring them here. They both back off. And when they back off, he jumps in. And then on 122. In the meantime, Calcabrina, furious, also took off, hoping the shade would make it so he could pick a fight with his companion. So you got one demon hoping that he gets it because he wants to pick a fight with his companion, and the other one not jumping in, or I mean going after him. So um, he, he tricked the demons, and the dream, demons used that trick to accuse each other. We have a perfect image of one aspect of hell. It's the, it's what's how the house divided against itself. It's Christ's words. And what, what we see here is, and it's true. Not, I mean, we see it comically in the scene. When he saw the grafter, grafter hit the pitch, he turned his claws to grapple with his brother, and they tangled in midair above the ditch, but the other was a full-fledged hawk as well and used his claws in him, and both of them went plunging straight into the boiling pond. So even the demons were tricked by this grafter. Um, and we've got this image of a hell divide. Now remember, in, in, this is a comic image of that one aspect of hell, but that's what we've been seeing all along, because wherever there are pairs, wherever Francisco Paolo, Diomedes, 
Ulysses, um, Ugolino and Ruggiero that we're going to come to in just a minute. Wherever we see pairs, they're always using each other for themselves. So even though they together, they could not be more divided. It's the nature of hell. Um, 131, the thieves. I don't have time to go into this, but on page 132, it's a beautiful description of how one soul, a snake, which is the instrument of punishment, comes up and backs a sinner, bites, sorry, bites him in the back, and it sets in motion this process of being transformed. He, and he gets changed into something that he wasn't. Um, you, if you haven't read this, you really should. It, it, is, it is so good. At the top of 133, I left the bestial life more than the human, like the bastard that I was. I am Vanni Fucci, the beast. Pistoia was my fitting den. Um, going over to 134, after Dante, stands in amazement watching these souls being transformed to each other. Um, um, Vanni Fucci runs off, and this is the way Dante describes him at the beginning of Canto 25. When he'd finished saying this, the thief shaped his fist into figs and raised them high and cried, Here, God, I've shaped them just for you. From, from then on, all those snakes became my friends. He's learning not Again, not to pity. He, he will in a minute. He's just... Um, um, those snakes became my friends for one of them that once coiled around his neck as if to say, that's all you're going to say, and he stopped. Um, that gesture, here, God, I've shaped them figs, he holds up. What he's doing is basically flipping God off. I mean, I don't even like describing it. It's so disgusting. But um, I'm going to... Um, page 140... This is Guido. Remember, this is the passage here um, describing um, Guido's response to Dante, wondering whether he'll go out into the world because he doesn't want anybody going into the world to tell him about what's occurred here. Remember, this is the um, epigram to Eliot's Prufrock. This is the Guido. Um, then there are the um, sowers of discord. Um, Going over to 144, I want to um, do a couple of these very quickly and then I want to look at the end. He comes to the evil counselors. Um, this is an, another example. He meets Ulysses and Diomedes. And the tradition at Dante's time was that um, they were both involved in the deception of the Trojans. They're the ones who set up the Trojan horse to, that led to the collapse of Troy. And remember, Aeneas is the one who goes on to found Rome. So that whole tradition is one Dante takes seriously because he's Italian, Roman, and Catholic. Um, Ulysses is Odysseus. Ulysses is the Roman word for Odysseus. And those of you who did the Aeneid know um, uh, how much, how critical Virgil was of Homer. Remember, he looked at the Greeks as being too independent, too, too given to their individuality, too self-centered, too concerned with their own ego, their own greatness. In Homer's world, Achilles stands over his world, Odysseus does over his. The whole point, remember, of, of, of Aeneas finding Rome was that he was going to found a universal city, not just for the Greeks or the Italians, or it was to be for everybody. 
It's like the beginning of the prototype of the heavenly city. All people would be there. The great focus of Rome was the common man, the common good, sorry. So Virgil was very critical of the Greeks because they were too given to their own greatness, <coughs> their individual greatness. That's so American. America really is a combination of ancient Greece and Rome. Both, we, we, we've assimilated them in, into each other. But look on 144. This is um, Ulysses, i.e. Odysseus, right? Um, telling Dante of what happened. Now pay close attention to this because this is sort of amazing. I and my mates were old and tired men, and finally we reached the narrow neck where Hercules put up. Remember, Odysseus was on his voyage home, and he had all these encounters, the Cyclops, the Circe, all of these. Um, where Hercules put up his signal pillars to warn men not to go beyond this point. So there was a statue there, the pillar of Hercules, that said, don't go beyond. On my right, I saw Seville and passed beyond. On my left, Cueta had already sunk behind me. Brothers, I said, who through a hundred thousand perils have made your way to reach the West during this so brief vigil of our senses. This is still reserved for us. Do not decay your, do not deny yourself experience of what there is beyond. Listen to these words really well. Um, do not deny yourself experience of what there is beyond I'm hoping everybody hears it. Americans, know that you're capable of doing anything, being whatever you want, be whoever you want, change your nature if you want. Be, have all the experiences so that you really know yourself. Um, during this brief vigil or our senses, this is still reserved for us. Do not deny yourself experience of, of what there is beyond, beyond the sun and the world they call unpeopled. Consider what you came from. You are Greeks. You were not born to live like mindless brutes, but to follow paths of excellence and knowledge. That all sounds so good. Now, at that point, they enter through this pass at the bottom of 144. Since we had entered through the narrow pass where there appeared a mountain shape darkened by distance that arose to endless heights. I'd never seen another mountain like it. Our celebration soon turned into grief. From the new land there arose a whirling ship that beat against the forepart of the ship and whirled us round three times, notice that, three times in churning waters. The fourth blast raised the stern up high and sent the bow down deep. And hold on to this phrase because we're gonna hear it again shortly as pleased another's will. In fact, you just write there in the notes, you can write page 200. And then the sea was closed again above us. Now hold on to those lines, okay, just for a second. What, what is going on here? Um, page four. Dante, remember, wanted to climb this mountain. You all know what happened. He saw this mountain, he wanted to climb it, but could not do it, and is driven back. Page four, that night I spent in deepest desperation, just as a swimmer, still with panting breath, now safe upon the shore out of the deep, might turn for one last look at the dangerous waters. So all I, although my mind was turned to flee, turned round to gaze once more upon that past that never let a living soul escape. Now go back to Diomedes and Ulysses. 
We had entered through the narrow pass when there appeared a mountain shape, darkened, so we've got the same, a pass, waters, a mountain. Our celebration end turned to grief. Um, the sea beat against them, whirled us round three times in churning waters. The fourth blast raised the stern up high and sent the bow down deep as pleased another's will. And then the sea was closed again. By the way, remember, those of you who've done it, remember Moby Dick? With that vortex in the coffin going down, um, the ship going down. What's Dante doing here? And I hope everybody's seen what Melville would have done with this. Is everybody following at the end of Moby Dick with, remember the vortex with the, the coffin bubbling up at the ship going down? And What's going on here? Wonderful passage. I can't even oh. follow you. I don't know where you are. Oh, sorry, Doc. It's, it's the, um, um, Canto 26, the end, very end of 26. 27. No, it's the end of 26. Oh, end of 26. Yeah. yeah, right before. Anybody? Do you have something? Is he attempting fate? Explain that, would you? So, uh, Ulysses, um, am I on the wrong path? You go ahead, I don't know. Go uh, ahead. Uh, he, he thinks he can um, go past what Hercules has already said. Like he's greater than Hercules or prideful. Or, mm -hmm. And so. Can anybody finish that thought <laughs> or add to it? Well, I'll tell you something that struck me. As I read the line, you were not born to live like mindless brutes, but to follow paths of excellence and knowledge, I couldn't help but think of the serpent and Eve. Oh, yeah. Who always appeals to our yeah. pride, pride, our arrogance, yeah. our hubris. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it works time and time, <laughs> time again. <laughs> I hope it works less and less as we oh. get older. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> Otherwise, why are we doing this? I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe we were helping each other. Yes, I believe. Consider what you came from. You are Greeks, not mindless brutes. How racial is that? Number one, I mean, first of all, Hercules. It's a warning. Do not go beyond these limits. He does. He says to his men, I mean, the serpent, but the, the way... Proud men given to their own excellence yeah. without respect to anybody else. Remember, in Virgil, when Odysseus comes to the um, island of the Cyclops, he finds a man there that, um, according to Virgil, uh, Odysseus had left behind. That's not in the Odyssey. That's Virgil's way of showing Odysseus cared too much for his own self, his curiosity, his wanting to know at the expense of his men. You know, if you talk to men in the military, I mean, the, the last thing that they want to do is admit that they left somebody behind. That's so crucial to soldiers. You don't, even if it means you risk your life, you do not, because they know it could be them. So Virgil's got this sense that every man is important. You cannot let your own quest for knowledge and excellence keep you from looking out for another. So there's that, there's that, there's the Greekness. We're Greeks, we're not brutes, the racial pride. But this mountain, what is this mountain? Mountain of Purgatory? You be still. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Can anybody follow up? Go ahead, Doctor. Do I don't. I, Robert, it's pure guess. I'm no. just now reading it. <laughs> Do you want to pick it up? No. I Does anybody want to pick up Suzanne's? I, I didn't hear what she said. I'm sorry. I said I think it's the amount of purgatory oh. that he's looking at through. Flesh that out, Doc. Go ahead. Flesh it out. What's what's no, flesh it out. Come on. If I mean, you ask, is it purgatory? If it is, what does that say about Ulysses? Well, he needs to turn around and go back and start in hell and go back up that way. But <laughs> <laughs> but at least he saw it. Um, what would be the what would be the reason then that Ulysses was allowed to go ahead and and Dante wasn't? Pilgrim wasn't. Sorry, I mean, go ahead. Where? Well, sorry. you know, he, he tried to go up the mountain, right? Dante. Uh, with the pilgrim. The, the, yes, Dante. Right. Um, and and couldn't because he was stopped. Right. But nobody stopped Ulysses. He went on and, I mean, I, I guess you could say he was stopped because the, the ship sank. But right. nothing, you know, I mean, theoretically, Dante could have tried to go up purgatory and was you know, eaten by the she-wolf or something, but that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So you, what's the what's the distinction there? Did you have something, Sue? Well, I'm not, this was a pathway I hadn't even seen open. But, but the distinction is Dante had the sense to go back and go to sleep and rethink this. Well, Dante had divine health. I think what's at issue yeah, here... He had divine health. That's yeah, remember a whole... that um, Ulysses wants to do this on his own. Yeah. That, that, that is this whole going beyond limits. Beyond the, I mean, everything about this is saying, go back, go back, go back. That is, to put this differently, I think he wanted to be, he thought, God, this is so American. Um, do not deny yourself experiences. Where does he say that? Um, do not deny yourself experience of what there is beyond. Can, can you not hear everybody, follow your dream, be whatever you want? Mm -hmm. That is, there's an encouragement in him uh, to be complete by having more and more experiences. So there's no sense of a limit or his nature. So in one sense, purgatory means it's that mountain that you climb to complete yourself. Because that's what's going to happen when Dante himself does it. But the difference is, Dante was beaten back. Divine help was given to him. He had to, or put it differently, does Ulysses really see himself the way Dante's coming to see himself? Ulysses is in hell. This, by the way, this is, this is not Homer's. <laughs> this is Virgil's Ulysses. Is everybody following that? Yeah. I admire Ulysses in Homer's world, like, or Odysseus. I mean, I just think. But when you go on to Virgil, you see there's things that the Greek, too isolated racially, didn't see. That the universal city was for all men. That, that we had to be <coughs> careful of ourselves if we were going to look out for each other. So it's much more given to the common good. It's, it's the beginning of Catholicism. So I think what Dante's showing us in Ulysses is an image of a man who wanted to be complete on his own. That what's being expressed here is this inordinate pride and its blindness to the importance of limitations. It keeps you from accepting the divine help you need to get Yeah, and it goes back to what you were saying, you know, a while ago when you say you just pick up the newspaper there and you see some guy, everything's he's excellent, he's done all and then suddenly. So this is beautiful in the way that it takes us back to the beginning, and we're getting ready to to look at that mountain. We're going to revisit it, you know, when, when Dante and Virgil finish here. Let's stop. Here, here, before you do, when we finish, when we when we come next week, I want to look 
at the last couple of cantos, the Alberito, the Alberito, Alber I can't even remember. God, it's been so long. Um, and the um, the Ugolino Ruggiero, those two, Alberigo, Alberigo, I think, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, Alberigo, he's a friar who betrayed Ken um, at a dinner. And um, Ugolino and Ruggiero, Ugolino was a political figure, Ruggiero was a bishop. And when you come across them, Ugolino is eating, feasting on the head of Ruggiero. That, I, I believe, my personal belief is, that episode is the climax of the Inferno, not Satan. As soon as we leave um, um, Ugolino and Ruggiero, we're going to meet Satan, almost immediately. When we leave that scene, because in that scene, we, we get the story of Ugolino being put in the tower by Ruggiero with his five nephews. And he reaches a point, I can't, he's going to eat them all. He's going to eat them. So it's an image of cannibalism. It's just a very painful, because these are his, uh, they're really his nephew, but he speaks to them as if he's their own, they're their own, his own children. I think it's the most horrific scene, and I think Dante did that purposely. So one of the questions that I'll ask is, if I'm right, you may disagree, but um, when we get to Satan, what we see in Satan is almost comic. It's almost anticlimactic. It's just, it, it's almost like an anticlimax to what, because we've seen this human eating another um, as a vengeance for what happened between him and his children. So I want to look at that very closely. So we'll spend just a little bit of time on the Inferno, and here are my questions. I want to go back to one scene that we didn't look at today and at the end and deal with this question of pity because Dante's been on a journey. He's been asked to see things. One of the serious questions we have to ask is, has he changed? Particularly with respect to this one emotion, pity, because I'm trusting by now that everybody knows how serious it is. Um, Dante's going to do some things at the end, and lots of critics are going to say he's exactly like the sinners himself. He's going to betray his word. He's going to go back on his word. He's going to lie to one of the sinners. He says, I'm going to do something, and then he doesn't. Because it's the modern critic of saying he's no different than my question, is he or is he, or is he not? How do we look at him with respect to this, the temptations that pity present to him? So I want to look at, at those scenes. There's an early scene where he, I think it's the dismembered, where he, he almost cannot stand up. He's so, so overwhelmed by pity at seeing the human form dismembered. Then he goes on to the end. He will lie to this guy. Some critics will say something, some critics others. I want to, I want to take up this question of pity. Has Dante learned? If so, what? And I want to look at the Ugolino episode and the Satan episode. Um, but I want to do that directly. I want to start the Purgatorio next week. So, first eight cantos. And here's my question about those cantos. What is Dante showing us about free will and human responsibility in the opening cantos of the Purgatorio? Major, major concern, because Dante is going to lay out one of the fundamental principles of the whole Commedia in those opening cantos about free will. And he won't deal with them explicitly. He will in the middle of the Purgatorio, by the way. But in the opening, what he does makes that absolutely clear what's at stake.
for us as humans. So, see you all. Have a good night's rest. <laughs> Help yourself to food, take home yeah, for lunch or like some of that coffee cake, please feel free to take some. <laughs> I didn't bring plates or anything for it, but a napkin will do, I guess. Well, there are plates there. I I'm going to wear the book. What, what book did you, did you write? I'm, it's, I'm finishing it. Oh.